0: uh, like I mentioned today, we're going to be in the summer in the Psalms, which I'm excited. Uh, my good brother, Jed Kessner is going to be bringing the word to us. So Jed, if you want to come on up, uh, we're going to be on page 458 in your Bibles, uh, in these chair Bibles in front of you. So if you guys want to turn to that, for those of you who don't know Jed, Jed is a, a dear brother in the Lord. Uh, he, uh, Uh, I think, Jed, you probably have more biblical education than all of our pastoral team combined. (laughs) But he's so humble that you would never know that. So Jed is a gifted brother. I'm excited for him to bring the word to us this morning. Uh, Jed was a part of a church plant that the Crossing sent out. He served as a pastor for a number of years. And uh, he'll, he'll share a little bit of those details in his sermon here today. But it's, uh, it's a real privilege to have our brother preaching this morning. So I'm going to pray for him, and then we'll get started. So let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he is the good shepherd. Uh, And Lord, I pray as we open up your word here this morning, this word, uh, this psalm that might be familiar to us, Lord, I pray that you would uh, really press into our hearts. And would you teach us deep truths about who you are, what you've accomplished through your son, Jesus, and instruct us in how we are supposed to live in light of that. So thank you for my brother here. I pray that his words would be uh, full of grace and truth, and I pray that we all would be encouraged by our time in your word here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: I'm not sure if any of you remember, I'm pretty sure that none of you do, but I actually spoke here four years ago, probably sometime around June, so it's been about four years since I've been up here. Um, so before we get started, I'm going to have Joe come up and read for us probably one of the most familiar psalms in all of Scripture. And actually probably the most familiar passage to non-believers or in the secular environment that's uh, common to see Psalm 23 in Hollywood films, etc. But we're going to go through a very, very familiar psalm and yet look at it from a unique perspective, I think, this morning. So, Joe, if you'd come and read for us.
0: Please stand for the reading of the word. (laughs) Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me, in the presence of your enemies you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord.
1: You may be seated. All right, I'm not sure what different approaches you've seen over the past as people have walked through Psalm 23. You may have seen some people take the shepherd's approach and pull out unique insights as what it means to be a shepherd of sheep. Or you may have heard people talk about the sheep's perspective of what it means for the shepherd to lead the sheep. And all of those are good approaches, but what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this psalm from the Hebrew perspective and see what we can glean from the style, the structure, and the content of the Hebrew script itself. One of my passions is Hebrew narrative and Hebrew literature, and um, so I'm, I'm excited to share some of these things with you. But before you check out, and it'll be like, oh he's one of these guys who's going to like bore us to death with conjugations and preformatives, subformatives and all that. I don't want to do that this morning. I want to be very pastoral, very helpful in how we use the Hebrew scriptures and how it helps us understand what's going on in this psalm. Um, Partly because one of my passions is Hebrew. And I I love talking about the Old Testament. I love talking about Hebrew and, and reading the scriptures. But The other reason is because there's some very, very personal reasons for me to walk through Psalm 23. Many of you know that in 2014, several of us left to plant Choice City Church here within the network, and Jeremy Holton was leading that. And a bunch of us left from the crossing, and in 2015, January 2015, I actually came on as a pastor at Choice City Church. And before I go any further, I should say as a one-time representative of Choice City, thank you guys as our sending church for sponsoring us, for helping us launch, and uh, for taking a risk. Uh, And as you know, it was a risk because in January of this year, Choice City Church actually closed its doors. So, um, But anyways, so in 2015, we became a pastor there. And I should say there's a lot of good that came from Choice City. I was blessed tremendously to be part of that, and uh, there was just a lot of good, sweet times of community. There was a lot of discipleship that took place. So there's a lot of positive things that came out of Choice City, and I want to be uh, acknowledge that. But at the same time, a season of church planting is a really difficult season. It's a lot of hard work, and some of you who are around with the crossing know exactly what I'm talking about. It's just a season of you put in long days on Sundays and all the other days of the week. Uh, my Sunday started at 8 o'clock. I left the house. We didn't get home till 1 o'clock, uh, just because of all the work. So church planting is a difficult season. It's a hard time anyways. It's a lot of work. But then in, in April of 2017, I was actually asked to step down as a pastor because of some restructuring issues Choice City wasn't doing well, and we, th- we thought that we needed to make some drastic changes to kind of hit reset, reboot, and relaunch Choice City, and one of those things was me stepping down as part of the pastoral team there. So in, in uh, April, I stepped down as a pastor, and then last June, so about a year ago, Grace and I actually made the transition back to the crossing and uh, have been here for about a, a, a year now. And some of you have have talked with me, and some of you know my story, but especially the transition time, our conclusion of our time at Choice City was really difficult for me. It was really hard, and it it was a time of deep darkness for me. It It was a dark valley, you could say. So not only was the church plant a lot of work, but first there came the realization that the church wasn't going to be able to be my vocation. So I needed to do something different. So that was a pretty major transition. But then the second thing was the realization that I needed to step down as a pastor as part of the restructuring process. And I'm going to be honest, that wasn't what I had in mind coming out of school. That wasn't what I envisioned my future coming out of school and going into pastoral ministry. And three short years later, it's like, no, uh, that's over. We need you to step down. Nobody goes and plans that their church plant is going to fail within three years, right? And I use those terms loosely. But nobody, nobody wants that to happen. Everybody, um, sees themselves at the, at the church plant, sees it succeeding. And Grace and I had seen ourselves there for, for many, many years, probably forever, for the next, uh, you know, season of life. So there was a lot of hopes and dreams and excitement coming out of school for this pastoral ministry position, this church plan. I was all excited about it, only to see those dreams and hopes get crushed and shattered uh, through some of those things that went on. But on top of all that, I think I was so worried about whether I was doing a good job as a pastor and how did people perceive me as doing a, as a pastor that I, I wasn't really free to really serve people as a pastor. Um, if that makes any sense. So, I, I, there were some internal struggles that I had to work through on top of all of these things. Things of, uh, performance issues and, and all that. So, if, if you wanted to put a label on it, it was kind of a disappointing rookie season uh, as a pastoral, as a pastor. So um, all these things are a very long way of introducing why I'm talking about Psalm 23. Because in the midst of all these things, I just happened to be studying through Psalm 23 in the Hebrew. And it just meant so much to me and was so life-giving to me in the midst of a deep valley for me. So I'm going to give you some very personal meditations on Psalm 23, a very, very familiar psalm as we go this morning. So my roadmap this morning is to look through the text, and then I'm going to pull out a few questions of application so that we can walk away um, and hopefully make some changes to our life because of this. So let's get started in Psalm 23. All right, so we get to the superscript. Haven't gotten very far, have we? A Psalm of David. Um, I like to point this out, that the superscripts are uh, traditional, but probably not original. Okay, so they were probably added at some later time than the original author penned this psalm. And so for that reason, when you hear me talk about the person who wrote this psalm, I'm going to be talking about the psalmist or the author, uh, that's why I do that. I don't want to get confused. I don't want you to be confused. Like, why is this guy talking about the psalmist instead of David? That's why. Um, so, uh, a point of clarification maybe that's more academic, more information than you needed to know, but um, I'll share that anyways. The next line the Lord is my shepherd. All right, so the Lord in your Bible, maybe capitalized all upper caps. Um, That signifies in the ESV, the translators have have rendered Yahweh as the Lord. Now look down at the bottom of your page at the end of the psalm, and you'll see that David, the psalmist says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the beginning of the psalm, and at the end of the psalm, we see that the author is focused on who? Yahweh. All right, so before we go any further, this is a clue about the author's orientation, if you will, when we get to this psalm. So he's consumed with Yahweh, and he's just oriented around this God from start to finish. And that's going to challenge some of our self-centeredness right off the bat before we get any farther into the psalm. And I'm going to say more about this, but it's important to note that this psalm, how the psalmist is oriented uh, from the very beginning. If you don't get this, and you don't get his orientation towards Yahweh, you're not going to understand the true significance of the rest of the psalm. So it's an important note for us as we get started. So the Lord is my shepherd. We see that it's very possessive. It's very personal, even intimate. Um, And we know that the shepherd is a frequent metaphor for kings or leadership, and certainly God specifically. And I could trace through Old Testament passages where God presents himself like, I'm going to be the better shepherd. And of course, we get to the New Testament too, uh, where Jesus is presented as the good shepherd as well. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So at this point, it's important to note that the psalmist Sets a, has a future tense when he's talking about his want that he will not want the Lord will not let him be in want and I should point out that this is a psalm of confidence alright so it's a psalm of confidence where the psalmist is expressing his confident faith assurance and confident conviction that Yahweh will be with him will be caring for his needs all his life as a shepherd. So this is not a psalm where the psalmist is wrestling through the difficulties or the agony of the deep, dark valley. This is a psalm of confidence outside of his circumstances, but where the psalmist is confidently expressing his trust in Yahweh himself. He's expressing a deep conviction that under Yahweh's care, he will not want, but he will be provided for. And, and again, when we go to the New Testament, we see exactly that in Christ. In Christ, we have everything we need. 2 Peter 1.3 is that Christ has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Romans 5.1, we have peace with God, among the myriad of other things that Romans presents. We have all sufficient grace, 2 Corinthians 12.9. He has delivered us from, the, uh, from darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1. And in John, as you just mentioned it, but in John 10, we, we see that Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. I'm just going to read a few passages, few, a few little clips from John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life. So we see that the shepherd has not only given us things, but he's given us himself. And I want to point out one more passage in the New Testament, Romans chapter 8. In verse 31, Paul is talking about God's love for us. And he says, what can we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he, not also with him, Jesus, graciously give us all things? Paul is a little bit incredulous as he writes. He's almost saying, what more can God give us? He gave us his son. So as we think back to Psalm 23, we shall not want. And one of the evidences that we shall not want is that God himself sent his son and laid down, and Jesus laid down his life for us. We shall not want under the care of Yahweh. He truly is our not just a shepherd, but a good shepherd because he laid down his life for the sheep. Look at the next verse. He makes me, well actually, yeah, first, verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. The green pastures are the pastures of grass. Uh, the shepherd provides food, nourishment for his, his sheep. He leads me beside still waters. Again, it's a physical provision for the sheep. The shepherd will lead the sheep to restful, quiet water. Still waters where they can drink in safety, where they don't have to fear the predators and fear the, their enemies. So the shepherd provides water, rest, physical needs for the sheep. He restores my soul. So this, now we see that the shepherd is going to provide not only physically for his people, but emotionally, mentally, spiritually. He's going to provide, he's going to restore, he's going to rejuvenate, he's going to refresh the soul as well. So again, this is a psalm of confidence that the psalmist is expressing that the shepherd is going to take care of all the needs of his sheep, physically and spiritually. But he's not finished yet. Let's look at the the next verse says he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So sheep are not necessarily moral creatures. So I would probably understand this to mean right paths. And in fact, that's the way the NIV or the NLT, if that's the versions you're using this morning, that's the way they've actually translated it. He will guide me. He guides me along the right paths. And I think that's probably works best, best with the metaphor of sheep and shepherd in this case, that Yahweh will lead them in right paths. So again, this is a, is a psalm of confidence and confidence that the shepherd knows exactly the paths to take his sheep on. He knows what's good for his sheep. But then we get to this critical phrase here. What's the next part? He leads me in paths of righteousness, what? For his name's sake. So why does the shepherd act the way he does? What, does the sh- why does the shep- what motivates the shepherd? It's, act- it's not the care of the sheep. It's actually for his own ends and for his own purposes. He clearly is going to meet the needs of his sheep. We've just covered that. We've just seen that. But he's going to do it for his name's sake, for his reputation's sake. For the sake of his glory. The sheep are his property and they are for his good and for his purposes and his plans. So, the greater purpose of the shepherd's actions are for his own glory. And if we're not similarly oriented or motivated for his glory, we're not going to be able to receive all that he has for us as his sheep. If he is not the center of our universe, We are not going to appreciate what he is trying to do as our shepherd. So throughout Scripture, we see that Yahweh works for his own plans, for his own purposes. And oftentimes, we are just not big enough to understand all of his purposes and plans. I give you the book of Job as an example of that. Job did not understand and was never really even fully told why God was doing what he was doing. And yet, God was just, this, was just as good of a shepherd to Job at the beginning and the middle and the end of his story. So we are never going to appreciate the shepherd until we understand that we are not the center of our universe. God is the center of our universe. That's why I said this. it's important to note at the beginning of the psalm that the psalmist is oriented around Yahweh as we'll never understand and never appreciate the shepherd until we understand that he is the center of his universe. And rightly so. And if you think that's unfair or egotistical, I refer you to Jonathan Edwards. And I won't, I won't quote a lot of what he said because most of it is beyond me. But if, here's a few things. that he said. If God is supremely valuable, then God should value himself supremely. And nothing is more loving than for God to exalt himself for the enjoyment of man. God's glory and the creature's goods are not at odds with each other. So in other words, if we work for God's glory, in turn we're actually ultimately working for our own good because that's what's going to bring us our best. So why does the shepherd act? The shepherd acts for his name's sake. And if you're not convinced that it's best for God to work everything according to his plan and his purposes, you will never be confident that he is a good shepherd. Let me say that again. If you're not convinced that it is best for God to work for his own purposes and plans, then you will never be convinced that he's a good shepherd. I think that's a very simple but profound understanding for us. And if we are not convinced that he is good and can work according to his purposes, there's always going to be a lingering doubt of like, I'm just not sure that God is good in my circumstances. Because frankly, I may not like my circumstances. So only when we can accept and appreciate his sovereign shepherding hand, can we rejoice in his goodness as a shepherd As it's expressed to us through a myriad of circumstances that we experience. Which leads us right into the next phrase and next passage, next section. Verse 4: Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, the valley of the shadow of death is actually probably, is popularized by the King James version. Many of you older crowd probably grew up memorizing this and have probably uh, quoted this a hundred times to yourself from the good old King James, which is a good translation by the way. I'm not knocking the translation itself, but uh, it actually stems, that actually is, comes and is derived from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which uh, and, and the reason it comes that way is the Greeks went, Greek translation translated one word in Hebrew. There's one little phrase that you can either take as one word or two words. And this is definitely on the fringes of my understanding of the Hebrew. So I'm just going to summarize it uh, because I think the way we should understand it is we should probably take it as a valley of deep darkness. Okay? So putting it all together, I would say even though, even if I must walk through a valley of deep darkness, I will fear no evil. So now remember, the psalmist has just said that the shepherd knows just the right paths to take his sheep through. So again, we're looking at a psalm of confidence, and the psalmist is confident that God the shepherd knows just the right paths, even if it means walking through a valley of deep darkness. Now, notice that the psalmist does not pretend that the shepherd will always or only take him through pleasant circumstances, i.e. green pastures or quiet waters. The psalmist is under no illusion that his pathway will always be as a sheep of the shepherd He's no, under no illusion that his pathway will always be green pastures or quiet waters. There will be times of quiet waters. We must have quiet waters and, and pastures of green grass. We must have that. But there are also times when, for whatever reason, the shepherd takes us through seasons of deep darkness. There's seasons of deep darkness that in the shepherd's sovereignty, we must walk through. But I want to point out something else in here, because when you come to the phrase, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Notice that the psalmist shifts from a third person kind of talking about God as an abstract or a concept. Notice that the psalmist shifts from talking about God in the third person to this direct address in the second person. He he calls out and identifies God directly. You are with me, and I think that this confirms that this is the central, or this is a supporting evidence in in one sense that this is the central theme of the psalm. That you, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And another thing that we see is that this is actually in Hebrew the very center line of the text. So if you want to call it mathematical centering or whatever, there's actually 26 words before this phrase, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And there's 26 words in the Hebrew after this. So it's kind of a, a mirroring device pointing towards this particular phrase as of significance, central significance among the other things that it's going to say. Now remember that in ancient times... They couldn't increase the font or make it bold or get out a highlighter and scribble all over the text. They they didn't have those options. They had to find some way of communicating within a really tight space where they, they didn't even put spaces in a lot of times because there was the, the you can't just go to Office Depot and buy another ream of paper. You have to slaughter an animal, etc., etc., etc. So you're you're, going to write as compactly as possible. So one of the ways they would highlight the central importance would be using this mathematical centering. It doesn't happen with all Psalms, but in this case, I think there's a clear evidence that this phrase, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, is of central importance, central significance as we go, um, as we look at it. And I think this is, this is simple, but it's hugely profound because there's, it's great that the shepherd gives us all that we need and promises us to provide for us. It's great that he restores our souls and knows how to do that. It's great that the shepherd knows just the places to take us and just where we need to go. Uh, and it's great that the shepherd has all the tools to, that he needs to shepherd us. We'll get to that verse in a second. And it's great that his goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. Those things are great. But if it weren't for this particular phrase, God could send all these things as a remote God. Maybe he would deliver them FedEx. I work for FedEx. He could deliver those remotely, and it wouldn't mean nearly the same thing as God's presence with us. We might have the good gifts, but we wouldn't have the giver. And these things would be good gifts, but without having God's presence with us, the gifts themselves, would not be as significant. So I want to park it here for just a second, for just a minute, because the Bible has a lot to say about God's presence with his people. You remember in the Garden of Eden that there was close intimacy with with man, with God. And Adam and Eve walked with God, talked with God, experienced a fullness of intimacy and fullness of relationship with God in the garden. But of course, you know, as soon as they sinned, their intimacy with God was broken, was shattered. And they actually hid themselves because they were afraid to be with God anymore. If you fast-forward the picture or fast-forward the story of of God as he singles out his people through Abraham and calls Israel and creates a nation and calls them out of Egypt, he says in Exodus 29 as he's establishing the tabernacle in the temple, later temple, but the tabernacle at this point, he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord God they God. So the, the tabernacle, the temple was an expression of like, this is where God dwells among his people. This is where God dwells on earth. And of course, if that's true, as a general knowledge in the Old Testament, the psalmist can still say, I will fear no evil for you are with me. God is present and was present with his people. But in the New Testament, we see a much, 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 much greater sense of God with His people, because Jesus came to Earth. We sang in our, our one of our songs this morning about God's condescension. And if you don't know what that means, that means when God condescended to leave Heaven and come down to man to be with man. So the incarnation is one evidence that God will be with his people and that God will be with us in our, in our trials. We see in John 1, John 1, 11, that he came to his own. And then in verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John is picking up on this Old Testament theme of the tabernacle because when he says Jesus dwelt among us, he's actually saying Jesus tabernacled among us. So the new expression of God with us is no longer the temple, is no longer the tabernacle, it's Jesus. In the Old Testament, you went to the tabernacle to see Jesus, to see God. And in the New Testament, John is connecting the dots saying, now you go to Jesus. To see God. That's where Jesus, that's where God is expressing himself. That's where you see God today. And Jesus truly dwelt among us. He is the long-awaited God with us, the Emmanuel. He experienced our world. He experienced our frailty. He experienced our brokenness. He experienced our heartaches and even our temptation as he was here on earth. So, when we get to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And in the Greek, it's actually a triple negative, which is good Greek but bad English. Um, <laughs> but it's, which is itself, an actually an Old Testament allusion. It's kind of a compilation of lots of thoughts in the Old Testament of, I will never leave you, no, never forsake you. So, what, so if you have any doubts about God's presence with you in this, your circumstances, then look to Jesus' incarnation. Look to the incarnation of Jesus. And look to, furthermore, look to the cross. Because Jesus was with us, not just living in this world with us as mankind, but took up our sin and died on the cross. So this is really good news for us, that Jesus, if we're God's people, will be with us in in any of our circumstances. But that's not all. The psalmist is not finished expressing his confidence in Yahweh, his shepherd. So let's look at the next uh, phrase, verse 5. Actually, I'm sorry, verse halfway through 4. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, again, notice that this is personal. You, your, your shepherd, your tool, these tools, your equipment, if you will, will uh, shepherd me. And in the ancient Near East, there's some evidence that the shepherds actually did have two different devices one, a shorter stick for maybe clubbing off attackers, and a longer stick for caring for the sheep or, you know, whatever shepherds do. Uh, I'm not a shepherd. But um, in any case, I think what this is. Showing us is that no matter what, the shepherd has all the right tools and knows how to use all the right tools to care for us, to care for his sheep. So he knows how to use his tools and he has all the tools to care for his sheep. Verse 5 You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Notice the shift here, we're we're no longer talking about the shepherd leading the sheep, but we're talking about a banquet meal with, maybe we could even say the shepherd with his sheep, although that would be mixing metaphors a little bit. But here's a banquet that the shepherd himself is going to prepare for his people. The table here is just uh, signifies fellowship or a, a meal, so we see, again, the presence of the shepherd with his people as he dines with them. And there's, in the ancient Near East, having a meal with somebody wasn't just time spent together. There was actually real significance to sitting down and sharing a meal with each other. You, you didn't have a meal with your enemies. You just, you just didn't do that. And so only the, your friends or close associates would you have a meal with. And it's not just a meal, but he says, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. So the, both of these phrases build on the notion of a fellowship meal with the shepherd. And it's, it's an expression of not a, like, barely a bread, a morsel of bread and maybe a glass of water, uh, just a Spartan meal. This is a, an extravagant, lavish Feast together with the shepherd. This is something that is goes beyond just the bare necessities. Um, it's it, it, it's not rationing out something. I mean, my cup overflows. Uh, if you think about wine, if you're rationing out wine because you don't have a lot, um, you're not going to let the cup overflow. So it's it's a sweet picture of the abundance that comes with the shepherd. He's not like miserly doling out little portions to you. He's like dumping it on. It's just like more, more. Just keep pushing it on. Um, so it's it's a it's quite the picture of an incredible feast with the shepherd. So the shepherd invites his people and his sheep to this meal all the while their enemies are looking on. One person said, in spite of their enemies and with their full knowledge. Another person said, they're forced, my enemies are forced to witness my enjoyment without being able to disturb it. This is what the shepherd does. It's quite a picture of abundance and the shepherd's care for his people, even in the midst of perhaps even oppression by the enemies. It's a picture of God's graciousness to us. And in Ephesians chapter 1, we see that God has lavished on us his grace. Ephesians 1, 7 through 8 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. And if we have any doubt about that, go to verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the word surely just connotes certainty. The psalmist again has a psalm of confidence. The psalmist is confident that Yahweh will certainly bring goodness and mercy. Now goodness and mercy are two very interesting words. Goodness and is um, just a word that we see all over the New Testament that just generally speaks of God's goodness or uh, even goodness towards others, just something that's good. But the other word, chesed, which is translated mercy here, is a really difficult concept to translate into English. There's no one word that fully translates this one word, chesed, God's chesed towards us. And it's perhaps one of the closest words that we get to uh, that expresses the, some of the ideas of grace that we see in the New, New Testament. But it, it, came from, it came to mean God's covenant loyalty to his people or his steadfast love expressed towards his people or his loyal love or unfailing love towards his people. Or as one translation says, the sure love that will not let his people go. So it's become, it, it, uh, became to include the notion of mercy because if God was going to be with his people, if God was going to show unfailing love with his people, he was going to have to show them mercy because they were a people who was constantly failing, constantly failing, constantly missing the mark, constantly falling short of what the, of what Yahweh's plans and, and, uh, purposes were for them. So it's a complex word, but it's a beautiful word expressing God's that, that hopes to like, share the beautiful love of God towards his people. The word uh, follow here is another interesting word because it, it's really radaf, which is to pursue. And normally it's used in the context of pursuing your enemies. So in the, in this, normally you would pursue your enemies until they're conquered. You pursue them ferociously or relentlessly. But the psalmist here flips this word on its head and uses it to speak of God's relentless love towards us. And we can say with confidence then that in all of our days, God is pursuing us with his loyal, unfailing, steadfast love and his goodness and mercy towards us. And we can say even more than that, that we, we can know He's shepherding us and leading us in our good times, when there are times of rest and quiet waters. But we can also say that God is leading us and His goodness and mercy are following us, pursuing us, even in our, in our valleys, in our dark times, in our times of calamity and trouble. And uh, we know that God is for His people. We know that God is for you. So only the shepherd, only the good shepherds, knows how to pursue his people, chase after them, run after them with his goodness and his mercy for his glory and for our good. So then we come to the last phrase, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever just signifies length of days, as long as I live I will dwell with the Lord. And the house of the Lord, as we talked about, the house of the Lord on earth was where God dwelt with his people. But it's also, it also connotes the place where God dwells permanently, which is in heaven. So I think the psalmist is using a both and idea of like, we're going to dwell with God, not only here in this life, but also in the life to come. So literally, all my days, forever, I'm going to dwell with the house in the house of the Lord. And here we see again that he ends up this psalm the same place where he started, Yahweh. So he's consumed with Yahweh as he praises the the Savior, the shepherd, for his goodness and his care to him. So if I'm going to wrap up this psalm, we see that Jesus is our good shepherd and he has given everything to us And we know that because he's given himself. We can also say that it's all about him and not you. So it's not necessarily about your circumstances. The Savior knows the the circumstances to give us to bring you to him and to shape you for your good. And we can also say that he is good despite our circumstances and in our circumstances. He doesn't just... uh, allow our circumstances to come into our lives, he actually orchestrates those circumstances for our good and for his glory. And he is good for the primary reason that he is with us. Because he is our Emmanuel, our God with us, key. He is with us. So I will fear no evil, for you are with me. So I want to take a couple moments here just to ask you a couple questions and take a few moments of application here as we wrap up this morning. So if the central theme of this passage, as I believe it is, and what I'm presenting this morning is, I will fear no evil for you are with me. I want to ask a question. Do you have fears? And perhaps the better way of asking that question, because we all have fears, are what fears do you have? What fears do you see in your life and your heart? Because fears can be one indication of, that your confidence is in something else aside from the Savior. Now, I know all of us profess, or most of us probably, profess that our confidence and our trust is in Jesus and in our shepherd. But functionally, even though we claim that there are, there are areas in our life where we don't fully rest on Jesus and don't fully rest... On God and what he has done for us. And fears are an expression of that unbelief. Fears are an expression where you might not trust or rest in the Savior, in our shepherd. If we fear that we, or if, if we believe money is more important and more significant than God, then we're going to fear that we're going to lose money or lose our income or lose our job. If we believe that so-and-so's reputation is more significant than what God thinks of us, then we're going to do this or not do that in front of them so that we can keep their approval of us. We might fear what they think of us. When we believe that good performance or accomplishment in this, that, or the other, you fill in the blank, whether it's a hobby, whether it's sports, whether it's your career, whether it's your job, or... Perhaps like me, you fill it in the blank with ministry. If you believe that being successful at ministry even will bring you happiness or success, then you're going to fear when those things are taken away from you or when you don't perform well or when you can't do well. So if, let me ask you this. If God is the most significant thing in your life, what do you have to fear? If God is the most significant thing in your life, what do you have to fear? because God will be with you. So ironically, fears can actually be a, a, a light on the dashboard, so to speak, that something's going wrong in your heart, and you need to turn that, whatever situation that is, over to the shepherd to let him restore your confidence in the shepherd that he will shepherd you through those things. And actually, fears themselves, in my case, fears themselves can actually be one of the ways the shepherd actually leads you and cares for you because he's going to orchestrate circumstances to highlight those fears in your life to bring out those fears even so that you can confront them and so they can restore your confidence in the shepherd who lovingly cares for you so we can address them we can confront them and that's just one other evidence that God the shepherd is working in our lives so, we don't have to live in fear because the Good Shepherd will be with us. We can keep running back to the truths of the gospel and truths of Jesus to confront, challenge, and address those fears that we see brought up in our lives. And speaking of good news, the last question I want to ask you is Is the reality of God's presence good news to you? Does that, is that meaningful? Or does that bring you comfort that God Himself will be with you? And if it's not really that exciting, or it's not really that helpful for you, or it doesn't bring you that much comfort, then maybe you've been looking to other things beside God. Maybe you've been looking to the gifts that God gives to bring you happiness and joy, instead of finding presence in God, the shepherd himself. Maybe you're more interested in the gift rather than the giver. Or maybe you're interested more in the healing rather than the healer. Or maybe you're interested in the saving and the changing of your circumstances rather than the one who will be with you in your circumstances. So maybe you need to lift your eyes off your circumstances. And I know in the midst of a dark valley, that can be very difficult for us to lift our eyes off our circumstances and up to the Lord who is our shepherd, who is with us. But maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you need to lift your eyes off yourself and look to the shepherd who promises to be with you. And we know that because he not only came to earth, but came and died on the cross in our place that he might be with us forever. Jesus' presence with us is better. It's better than a better job. It's better than better health. It's better than better relationships. It's better than better circumstances. It's better because Jesus will be with us. And that's really good news for us this morning. Just as a bit of a postscript, I know I've shared a little bit about my uh, s- some different circumstances for me, At the, particularly in 2017, it was a tough year for me, as I've shared. But I want you to know that the last year have been a time of quiet waters and rest for Grace and I as we've been back here at the crossing. And uh, I have all of you to thank for that. You guys have been kind friends as we've transitioned back here. Um, But I also have our our life group to thank for that. It's been really good for me to be uh, around a bunch of millennials whose dreams are still intact and who have bright visions for the future when my dreams took quite a beating over the last few years. So I have needed community more than I have ever realized in my life and our our life group particularly has been a, just a sweet um, com- time, uh, sweet place of community in a general, non specific way, um, and that's a shameless plug for our life group and life groups in general. <laughs> um, but I just want to say that the Lord has been really kind to us in bringing us through times of deep valleys and a dark, time of deep darkness, but also has been kind to us, Grace and I, to lead us in times of quiet waters and now a little bit more rest. And I'm even more confident than I was two years ago that the sovereign shepherd would lead us in just the right paths, even if it means walking through a valley of deep darkness. The shepherd is a really Good Shepherd. And He knows how to take us just through those paths to bring us to Himself and for, to bring glory to Himself and bring good for us. So, my confidence in the Good Shepherd has grown ups and bounds in the last two years because of the Dark Valley. So, whatever your circumstances, whether it's green pastures or whether it's dark valleys, know that the Lord is with you. Know that the Lord wants to walk with you in your circumstances. And that is really good news for us. Let's pray. Jesus, you are truly the good shepherd who gave his life for us. So Lord, as we transition to celebrate your death through communion, would we just be able to rejoice in you? Rejoice that you are our good shepherd. And may we be transformed by your presence with us. Transform us, Lord, as we behold your glory, as we behold our shepherd. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.